I just think that there's no way to love the church for who she is without being first terribly disillusioned with her. And um, it's kind of like forgiveness. There's no way to forgive somebody unless you acutely feel every bit of the hurt they did to you. Boom! And we're here! Are we live? We are live! <laughs> hey, Mike and Preston here. The Mike and Preston show. Uh, we're doing um, Vox in the Raw today. Which, Vox uh, in the Raw! <laughs> Dude! Let's do yeah. that. Um, Vox in the Raw. Raw on the Vox. Nah, so, I like Vox in the Raw better. So Preston, you have wandered consistently throughout your career into very non-controversial areas, right? So we started with nonviolence, <laughs> and um, and then we went to hell, yeah. and then we went to or was hell first? I don't remember. Hell and came first. And hell was first, and yeah. then nonviolence. Perfectly. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and then now you are the head of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Woo! You know what's you know what's funny is even when I was doing scholarly stuff. Uh, are you familiar with the new perspective? Of course, Paul? dude. Dude, are so you that kidding was me? My, so I, I, I just realized, I just the other day, I thought, you know, I was actually doing controversy before the race in hell and in the scholarly circles because I was wrestling with new perspective stuff and I was going back and forth on where I was at on that and, and uh, took kind of a, a nuanced middle of the road perspective. <laughs> nice. See, to me, to me, there are six, there are six gospel writers, the four in the Bible, Dallas Willard and N.T. Wright. <laughs> so I don't even I don't even question him anymore. I just accept whatever oh, he says. Man. He's so good. He's, he's so, so good. he's so good. Yeah. Do you, and, and and so what do you do? I mean, so yeah. you're the director of this institute. What do you do as a director of an institute? So the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender started in 2017. Our mission statement is to help pastors, leaders, and churches engage questions about faith, sexuality, and gender with theological faithfulness and courageous love so basically i help <laughs> <laughs> you threw me that softball man you knew i was gonna swing at it that's so good we, I, I exist we exist as an organization to help christian leaders not just pastors and actually the non-pastor yeah. thinker leader whatever is makes up obviously maybe 40 percent of the people we're, we're reaching but um we do oh, have nice. a slight focus on people who are doing kind of church ministry to help them think through both the theology of sexuality and gender, but also uh, all the practical stuff too. We call it you know, like a pastoral theology of LGBTQ plus, plus, plus related questions. So yeah. Uh, yeah Which, and, and that's, and that's, that's been an empty space as, as, as we've all tried to, I mean, it, pre, I don't know if it is still, but it, it's been an empty space in church world as churches are looking at each other going, what the heck do we do with this? Right. With these, with these wonderful people and this issue, right? There, there, there's people doing bridge building ministries between the church and the non-churched LGBTQ community. There's org, there's a great organization called Lead Them Home, which has been training church leaders on LGBT inclusion, the pastoral side. Mm. Um, there's also affirming organizations uh, like mm -hmm. the Reformation Project. Yep. Um, Q Christian. Um, would be sim ah, that that's a little bit of a broader space, but that they, they, they do kind of theological training on on a on an affirming side. As far as I know, I don't know anybody that does a a, bl a blend of theological pastoral training 
that does dig into all the complexities of the theology, but totally. doesn't stay there that actually does do a lot. I mean, 50% of what we do is the pastoral stuff on the other yeah. hand. So yeah, yeah, there's not a whole lot that I know that's doing exactly what we do. No, I don't, I really don't think so. And to, to what degree, so you, so the book, the book you wrote, people to be loved, um, yeah. uh, we talked about it on the podcast, uh, we meaning Andy and I, yeah. um, and, uh, so that had to be an interesting venture into hmm. uh, this space. What uh, what was the I don't know what was the reception like from both sides? I would imagine both sides aren't super satisfied with where you're at. Yeah. So both sides is really broad. Uh, with yeah, true. With with the polarizing extreme ends of both of those sides. Uh, for lack of better terms, the far left thinks I'm a Nazi and that I hate gay people. The far right think I'm affirming uh, of same-sex marriage and believe I'm going down, you know, I'm damned to hell. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> Sorry, that's my wife. <laughs> Sorry. I love, that you, I love that you hung up on her to, you know. I did. Dude, it's Preston Sprinkle. Come on, man. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the polarizing voices pretty much mirror each other. Um, it's, it's funny, all, isn't it? almost verbatim almost verbatim uh they don't try to understand what i'm actually saying i mean i just just today i was looking at my facebook page and i had a ton of people saying i'm not only damned to hell but leading people to hell (laughs) because i am and they're responding to a post that i advertise about a a a leadership training i'm doing with a link to my statement on sexuality and and faith and everything that's crystal clear that I hold to the traditional view. So they couldn't even click on, they didn't even have an interest in clicking on the link just because I was talking about faith, sexuality, and gender. They were putting all these gifts of people jumping into the fires of hell, (laughs) all this stuff. So, but then, but then responding to them were the people on the far left, they were equally hating me for the exact opposite (laughs) reason. The only difference in the only difference in language was that the, the liberals were swearing and the Christians were the quote unquote Christians were not. Yeah. But even then I was like, I think they, they, they made the conservatives so angry because they realized that they're both saying the same thing. Um, <laughs> and I think they even got some of the fundamentalists to start swearing and cussing and stuff. So. Oh, you know, that's when, you know, you've, you've nailed it right there. <laughs> that sweet spot. And, and so your, your view and, and the view of kind of people to be loved, the thing that's so interesting is I, I, so if people are coming into the LGBTQ conversation, I recommend uh, Matthew Vines as, yeah. as kind of the best popular level you know what i mean by that mm-hmm. sort of entrance into the affirming position yeah and then i recommend your book um uh as as a, a very kind entrance into the non-affirming position right yeah and um and, and so part of you know so part of why you're getting crap right is because you're not totally affirming um yeah. but you're not non-affirming in the way that yeah you should be <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That I would, I would, um, I would passionately articulate and maintain. And if I need to defend a traditional view of marriage, I, th- I, I do, I know I'm not allowed to say this, but I think it's among the clearer teachings in scripture, but I would oh, turn now, around hold the on next- a second. <laughs> wow. No, I mean, that's a huge statement these days, right? It, oh, it's, oh yeah. And yeah. even, uh, you know, in a world where everything is just your interpretation, people don't like to say it's clear because it's, and it, and it is a subjective statement. Sometimes I say cl- it's clear to kind of provoke people to mm. react, you know, um, yeah, that'll work. But, but I would turn right around in the very next breath and challenge uh, the conservative church to not just 
try to love LGBT people, but delight in and laugh with and dine with and have them over to watch your kids and to, you know, share bread over the table and to learn from, um, like you mm. can actually get in a conversation with a married gay couple and actually learn relational <laughs> wisdom <laughs> right. from that couple. Um, I mean, maybe I'm not saying just because you're gay means you nailed it relationally, but, but just, just to extend that grace leash much farther than the church has ever thought they could extend it. Yeah. Um, and so people don't, yeah, people see me as schizophrenic sometimes. I don't know what to do with it, but I just, I truly, and I know this is, I don't, I'm not throwing, you know, the J card down as a Trump, <laughs> you know, I mean, when you look at the life of Jesus, I just see, I just see that. I mean, he upholds a very high standard of obedience, like the Sermon on the Mount, you know, right. try reading the Sermon on the Mount and then going outside and doing that. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah. like he cared deeply yeah. about obedience but then he radically loved those who fell short of that standard of obedience. And, and so I do think that Jesus, I, I think he nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. Shocking. <laughs> but, it, but I think his approach to what I call social, let's just say those who have been seen as socially unacceptable sinners by the religious elite of his day, it almost, that almost perfectly maps upon how the church has gone about the LGBT yeah. conversation. So I just look at the life of Jesus and say, how did he treat those who, you know, um, are, are similar to how we have, been, have historically treated LGBT people. So yeah. when in, in all of your research for the book, but all, in all these conversations you're having, you're going around the country, talking to churches and people, what is the single best argument for the affirming point right. of view? Yeah, I'll give you I, I'll give you mine. Or, or yeah. No, you give me yours. And then I, if it's the same one, I'll agree. Okay. But I, there's one I have, too, that I haven't heard answered well. Okay. So start you start. Oh oh oh. <laughs> Sorry. Start. Sorry, I was very unclear about how that was going to go. So so I uh I will give you 3 that in my journey I have uh found to be um wow, I I it kind of took me by surprise. I was like, wow, how would I respond to this in a way that isn't isn't just trying to refute the argument, but truly is understanding the yeah. argument, the evidence used to support it, is it is is like genuinely is the evidence valid or not? If it's valid, then I need to keep, you know, looking into this. The first argument that challenged me was um, the fact that most male same-sex relationships in the larger biblical era, in the Greco-Roman period, yep. were exploitative. They were between people of different power differentials, you know, a yep. citizen and a non-citizen, a master and a slave, older man, younger boy. Um, we don't see a lot of evidence for adult consensual male same-sex relationships so that when you read Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 1, the three passages that prohibit same-sex relationships, you have to ask a question, does Paul have a certain kind of same-sex relationship in view that's exploitative mm -hmm. and, you know, oppressive? Yep. Or is he ruling out same-sex relationships categorically? That would be the right. one... And I could I could give a whole response to that if you want me to, or I can give uh, the other no, two. No, I, I just want to hear the best ones. Okay, yeah. On the on that side, get, right. Hit your other two. Uh, the other second one that um, that I encountered that was popular. Well, it was popular back in the '90s, and it's been resurrected by uh, partly by James Brownson and then Matthew Vines is the so-called mm -hmm. excessive lust view. Yeah. Meaning that what Paul is critiquing is not male same-sex relationships per se, but that he is echoing a particular Greco-Roman view that uh, um, same-sex relationships among men at least 
were a result of excessive lust. And the problem isn't the same sex aspect of it, but the fact that they are giving into uncontrollable lust and are exploring mm-hmm. new kind of kinky territory with other guys. Right. Um, in fact, so just to be honest, when I encountered the argument, I said, man, I think this might be the most compelling affirming argument. Um, I need to spend a lot of time wrestling with it. So I actually wrote um, two peer reviewed journal articles interacting with, with that view. Um, oh, so nice. I said, look, look, if I can't respond to this, then maybe it's right. Maybe I need to, you know, go with that. Yeah. But then after looking into it, I was like, man, I, I think it's, it's, there's several logical and historical leaps they're making there. But the third one would be uh, the whole idea of sexual orientation being unknown to um, mm-hmm. the writers that biblical writers just thought that everybody was straight. And you can kind of, if you're acting on or, you know, and if you're going to be same sex attracted, you're kind of choosing it. And now we know from the last, you know, 50 plus years or so that sexual orientation is something that is not chosen, that it is, you know, uh, uh, inborn maybe. Um, and that if the biblical writers knew of what we now know about sexual orientation, then they wouldn't have uh, said the things that they did. So th- those would be the three I most, yeah. pop, you know, ones that we'd have to wrestle with. So can yeah. I refute them or should I just let the audience wrestle with that? I'm fine. Either. I mean, I've, I've responded to a many in many places yeah you know. no let it let's let them sit to me okay. i'd love your thoughts on this one because i'm i'm with you on those absolutely mm. but i was talking to uh to Mackie from the bible project yeah. yeah and we were talking about the old testament concept of accommodation and yeah and you know he makes a big a big deal rightly so about how god is dealing with suboptimal conditions the law is not god's ideal the law is triage right, right. yeah and um and, and and if you understand it that way, and, and you take divorce as kind of the test case of even right. you know where Jesus is like, yeah, but you know, hello. Um, I've had I've had some gay men agree with me hmm. uh, that the ideal is in Genesis one and two, but nah. they don't fit they don't fit that ideal. Why wouldn't God accommodate hmm. to same sex attraction the same way He accommodated to polygamy? Right. Uh, the same way he accommodated to slavery, the same way he accommodated to patriarchy. Yeah. Right. So why? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, because, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, that's and I haven't read that. That's a Mike Erie one, and and I and I'm sure it's out there by much smarter people. C.S. Lewis, I'm sure wrote about it. You know, years <laughs> yeah. ago. But 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 that that's one I've really been wrestling yeah. with. It's like yeah, because because what do you do? Like the biggest argument, I, we had people at, at at our church Vox that that were unbelievably in love with Jesus and, yeah. and uh, here they're, they're lesbians and they're married. Yeah. So what, what are my <laughs> options there? My <laughs> options are, well, Hey, you should get divorced and be celibate. Yeah. Right. And that, then you're living in God's will, or you should be excluded from the church community. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there just isn't, there, there's <laughs> no, there's no room in there. And yet these are dear friends and they're yeah. wonderful people and there's fruit yeah, of Jesus yeah. probably more fruit than many than, than, than many. Like, yes, yes, <laughs> the many people on your Facebook yeah. page. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. So there's several. I mean, there's uh, several moving parts there that we can wrestle with, and we might have to pull apart each part and examine it on its own. I terms. Love it. I love uh, it. Uh, let me let me say let me say this in, in the um, I edited a book called uh, The Bible and Homosexuality, or Two Views on the Bible, mm-hmm. Homosexuality in the Church. And there's two essays by traditionalists and two essays by affirming uh, Christians. 
one of the essays by the traditionalist, uh, Stephen Holmes, he's a professor at St. Andrews, the, uh, the theologian, um, he argues for traditional marriage, but he makes the accommodation argument, he actually, in, in the, at the end really? of his essay, he, he kind of suggests maybe we should pastorally accommodate uh, given the kind of situation we're in. So, um, no so that, that argument has been made from a traditional huh. perspective. He, huh. Here's my one big pushback, and this is this was my pushback to him, is yes, you do see, I'll call it a trajectory of accommodation. And we can put, mm -hmm. I would put violence in the same area where Ooh, violence is, um, and this is my whole argument in my book, Fight. You know, I had three chapters on mm -hmm. the Old Testament because what do you do with the Old Testament when you're arguing for nonviolence, you know? Right. And what we see is God meets Israel where they are at. And the yeah. law, as you suggested, is tolerating to some extent and regulating mm -hmm. um, an imperfect ethical system that God found Israel in. Polygamy right. was just so, such a part of society that he didn't, inv God, you know, the law doesn't like, promote it. It does regulate it though. It doesn't, yeah. but it doesn't end it. But what you see in these accommodating ethics with uh, patriarchal society, kind of misogyny in the Old Testament, violence, uh, divorce, and what was, you said another one, um, oh, slavery. slavery. Mm -hmm. All of those, though, if you follow those throughout Scripture into the New Testament, you see the ethical trajectory moving away from just simply accommodating towards, it, the, the, the trajectory is moving toward the Genesis 1 and 2 ideal, so that divorce, right. Jesus tightens in the reins on that. You definitely see misogyny. I mean, Jesus elevates women like far above yeah. any other um violence you know now it's not kill your enemy it's love your enemy yeah. um and uh, what was the other one um slavery oh, sla slavery you know that one's can, can be complicated but i still paul doesn't end the institution of slavery but he does kind of gut it from the inside out i mean some of the things he says about masters honoring your slaves that, that would just be unheard of and then if you follow that trajectory on into early church history when christianity did kind of take over they did end slavery right um so with those kind of ethical trajectories that begin with some sort of accommodation in the Old Testament, you see them moving towards the Genesis 1 and 2 ideal. And I would say the, you just don't see any accommodation to um, same-sex relationships or even things like adultery or, and I hate using, these aren't analogies, okay? But all, well, let me just say this. You can go read the verses. All, all the sexual things in Leviticus 18, mm -hmm. they're pretty straightforward across the Old and New Testament. There is no accommodating than permitting and you could take other ethical questions like like adultery or even like caring for the poor like that is from genesis to revelation believers should care for the poor it's part of our almost like part of our identity so throughout scripture you see trajectories moving in all different directions sometimes towards mm -hmm. from permission permission to prohibition sometimes from prohibition to permission sometimes it's mm -hmm. just prohibition prohibition or permission permission so we can't just look at a trajectory like divorce that moves a certain direction and map that on same sex relationships. We have to consider each one on their own. Anyway, no, I'll stop. No, that's uh, yeah. no, no, that's good. It, but that's where then your other three arguments come in to play more powerfully, particularly oh, the one yeah, that would, with the that orientation would, and yes. Yeah. And that, and that's where you'd go, well, the, you know, the, the gender dysphoria stuff. I mean, we, we're into conversations yeah. that the scripture <laughs> just never envisioned yeah. and just mapping, uh, stamping a Bible verse on, on something just doesn't appreciate all the nuance. So right. my yeah. response, again, if I were devil's advocate, I would be saying, yeah. Hey, I think you're absolutely right about trajectories, but in this case, there's yeah. new information 
that, that where, the biblical yeah, would, writers did not have. Well, I would push back on oh. <laughs> the orientation. What I think is, let me just let me just be provocative. I think it's both ethically <laughs> and scientifically invalid. Whoa! Um, because we, uh, what do we know about orientation? From a scientific perspective, the more we study it, the more we don't really understand where it comes from, how immutable it is. I mean, there's, we now know from the work of like Lisa Diamond that um, same-sex desires among women is incredibly fluid and shifts and change. And even among men now, since 2014, there's been several scientific studies coming out that are kind of like, man, these, these airtight categories of gay, straight, bisexual are just not airtight at all so mm -hmm. if we take the the definition so all that to say i think it's let me just be as um uh, this is vox in the raw dude it's yeah, vox in the be, raw if i was an atheist and hated the bible yeah <laughs> perfect i would still say it just doesn't really follow to rely upon this real wet sand hard to understand thing called sexual orientation and use that as the the foundation to form our ethical views from maybe in 5 10 15 20 years we'll have a much better understanding but to say that uh some people experience a desire for this therefore it must be okay to act on like that just doesn't work scientifically nor ethically so ethically so the definition of orientation is an, an enduring pattern of emotional romantic and or sexual attraction to somebody of the same sex would be same sex orientation. So if we went back to Paul and Jesus and said, okay, I know this behavior is immoral, but I know a person who has an enduring emotional, romantic and sexual desire to do that act. I think that Paul they didn't Jesus choose would, that they didn't choose that they didn't choose. Right. Um, but that I don't, I think Paul and Jesus, given the sexual ethic we see in the new Testament kind of shrugged <laughs> their shoulders and say, since when does internal inborn desire justify behavior? I mean, or let's broaden it out. Here's where I tell people to use the orientation argument. I say, okay, here's my one plea. If you're going to use that, if you're going to say that in, in an unchosen desire, that's mm -hmm. really strong. And maybe you might have the desire from birth to death. If, if your ethical argument is that if that's true of somebody, then they should be allowed to act on that desire, at least be consistent with anybody who has a desire they didn't choose, it's really strong, doesn't seem to be going away, then at least say, at least be fair to everybody and say that uh, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna be consistent in my ethic and say, if that's you, then you're allowed to act on that desire. But, I'm, but not not gonna all... use, I'm not gonna go with the analogies, I'll let my audience. No, no, no don't, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> but, um, but, 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 wouldn't, but wouldn't then the counter be, yeah, but, but the way that we regulate between the desires that we permit and the desires that we outlaw are whether or not they hurt another. I don't, I mean, that, that is a, a really popular secular, secular ethic in the West, the kind of, as long as it doesn't harm people, it's okay. But that's not, um, I don't, I mean, I don't think that's the only criteria of, of Christian ethics or even just, um, are you familiar with the work of Jonathan Haidt? Oh, yes. So he, in his book, The Righteous Mind, he, he talks oh, about yes. this from a secular perspective. Yeah. And um, he, he lays out that the sort of, don't harm other people is a very, very Western, modern, almost white eth ethic. And it was him that when he, after he traveled to India and saw that, oh man, there's all kinds of other ethical impulse, moral impulses that people have like uh, purity or shame or honor, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. you know, I could, uh, if I took a dump and wiped my butt with the American flag, I'm not harming anybody, but a lot of people would kind of say like, I just, that just doesn't <laughs> feel right. Or, or Jonathan Haidt uses the example of if you run over your dog, 
you actually kill your dog. It's sad. You have a little funeral and then you take him into the kitchen, butcher him up and, and eat the meat of your dog. You eat your dog. You're not harming anybody. You're actually making a good use of, 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 you know, meat that's just going to go to waste. But most people would say for some reason that just doesn't, I don't know. Like, so, and the, again, these are right. maybe somewhat creepy, whatever, but I mean, um, <laughs> but he, he actually uses those illustrations to show that there are other moral impulses that go beyond mm. just harming another human. Obviously we don't want to harm another human, but we can't reduce ethics to as long as it doesn't harm anybody, as long as it's a byproduct of your desire or whatever, then it's okay. And this is coming from a secular perspective. I mean, Jonathan Heights and yeah. an atheistic Jew. And he says, man, uh, and, and his, well, I can keep going, but um, <laughs> yeah, real quick, his reason for, for doing this is because he was on the far left ideologically and politically, and he mm. kept getting frustrated at why the conservatives keep winning. And then he, when he looked into this, he was like, look, the left only uses the harm argument. They mm. keep writing the harm argument when there's five or six other moral impulses that humans have and mm. conservatives keep drawing on those. And that's why in his mind, conservatives kept winning is because they are appealing to all these other moral impulses like authority, respect for authority. You know, it's the conservative that's going to be upset if somebody mops the floor with an American flag, the, the liberal's not going to care too much, you know, but, yeah. but you know, the conservatives are tapping into all these other moral impulses. But you know, and when I was reading his work, I'm like, well, a lot of those other moral impulses are found right in scripture. I think he would even agree right. with that. He's pretty well versed in, in the mm. text. So um, anyway, I'll stop. I'm, I've been talking too much, and this is a no, joint podcast. So. No, dude, I love it. <laughs> Preston, one of the reasons why you are awesome is uh, you get wound up. You have a great personality, lots of insight. I just love it, man. So, yeah. of course, I'm going to try to throw something out controversial, <laughs> and you're going to run with it, baby, because that's what you do. I love it. No, I love it. I just think – and I wanted to, to do that because uh, it's so rare to have people speaking directly on this, like church clarity, you know, is, yeah, is yeah. you know, I mean, right. We did a whole, we did a whole show on just that. And it was like, really? well, yeah. And what and, did you think about that? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, um, uh, under, uh, first of all, the impulse behind it, I think is, is very fair yeah. and just, right. You would, I mean, wait, we, you would ex explain, explain to our audience what it is first. Oh case, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, church clarity was, uh, or is, excuse me, a website that ranks churches on uh, on a scale, and I don't remember the exact uh, wording, but pretty much from, are they clearly uh, unaffirming? Are they clearly affirming? Are they murky? Do, are they sort of leaning unaffirming? Right. Are they leaning affirming? Or are they murky? And they, yeah. They, yeah. there's a kind of a don't ask, don't tell. Right. And, and as people would come to... Um, uh, you know, to a church, uh, they could enter the church and then research kind of where the church was and then not be betrayed later. Cause I, I, what I hear from, um, gay friends is just the, the bait and switch. Yeah, hey, we exactly. welcome everybody, but you can't serve here, 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 and here. Right. We don't let you do children's ministry. We won't let you lead, you know, blah, 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 blah. But sometimes they said they tell that to them two years down the road, right? Like they get plugged into community. They have all these relationships and That's all of a sudden horrible. they're like, I'm getting married. Can you marry me? Oh yeah. We don't believe in that. Like you let me sit in your pews for two years totally. before you actually told me where you're at. Yeah. 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 So if point. I'm, so it is. So, so the, the, I think the desire behind it is, is magnificent. The issues come in 
for a community so so and and kind of a community like ours where we wanted to escape the affirming non-affirming binary yeah and um and and so we don't want it clear now now that doesn't mean um we don't think we don't have opinions or we don't have convictions about it or whatever it just means that uh, the way we described our church was we want a place where affirming and non-affirming people can love and serve each other. Because okay. w- w- however you, however you, whatever theological position you take, our yeah. churches are full of this, right? They, and it's not yeah, going away. Right. And yeah. so, and so where would you put us on that scale? Right? We, we, right. uh, we just didn't fit. And, and not only that, but, um, we had people who would come to our community and say, Hey, I'm glad you're not affirming. And they were gay. Mm-hmm. We've been to affirming churches and uh, at least in their yeah. experience, the churches spent more time talking about how great they were to be non-affirming uh, yeah. or to be affirming, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, and not, you know, the bigger stuff. So, so it, it, it's an interesting attempt. And I I'm in favor of, if I were, if I were, a gay Christian, I would want something like this. I would not yeah. want to be betrayed by the slippery language of yeah, Christian yeah. ministries. But but it didn't, I don't think it maps exactly how churches are trying to process through this issue. Yeah. And um, and what I think it does is elevates um and I understand why, but I just don't agree that that is the most important issue. Right. Um, no, I, I, if I, if I were gay, I would, I would think differently, but, uh, on any issue, um, I don't think there's one litmus test that describes the whole community. I just don't think that's how Jesus works. Right. And uh, I don't think his body should work that way either. I think yeah. you should, there should be places where affirming and non-affirming people mm-hmm. interact and, um, and, and it's not the new humanity when just the people who all think the same way and act the same way are together. Yeah. Um, no, I, yeah, that's good. I, I, yeah, I had several problems with the church clarity and I talked to, um, had a long conversation with one of the, the guy who founded him. I'm, I'm blanking on his name now. Yeah. 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 Did you have him on or somebody on or no, you, did, no. you guys just talked about it. We just talked about it okay. from the, from, but we used their website language. Okay. So I, I didn't, um, cause their big thing is just, it needs to be on the website. So here right. I a hundred percent agree that the bait and switch thing that absolutely we should not do, that churches should be clear about where they're at. E- even if they're not sure where they're at, be clear about that. Uh, yeah. If they're really strong on one side or the other, be clear about that. But I just don't like that the one criteria criterion for clarity was if it's on the website or not. Because from my vantage point, these right. are conversations that belong uh, over the table, over bread, um, and in face-to-face embodied relationships. And, and one of the problems is that for traditional churches, the traditional view of marriage has been so stigmatized as being anti-gay. Uh, mm-hmm. You think all gay people are going to hell, or if they get saved, they have to become straight. So if I have a statement that's, for lack of better terms, is, is a yeah. non-affirming statement, People are going to say, oh, okay, so that church is anti-gay. They hate gay people and think they're creepy and, and all this kind of, you know, like yeah. stuff that we, we created for ourselves from the moral majority in the 1980s and 90s. Like we, we provided people with that kind of impression of the traditional view. So what I don't want people to do is to read a statement. Mm-hmm. This is one of the problems with big problems I have with the Nashville statement. Nashville statement, absolutely. Just read the statement and then read into that all this baggage that that's has right created over the years and that 
you know, that they're going to assume that I am a certain kind of person, you know, I mean, yeah. Um, and even like, I, I think, uh, we have, well, people have blurred this, they have blurred sexual ethics with loving people so that, um, dude, that's the big one. That's the big one. Like, so here, I mean, I, I, I'm constantly trying to push people to, to, in a sense, separate those two. How know. could you, how could you love somebody Preston if you disagree with who they are? <laughs> See, that's the, <laughs> right. That, I mean, that's how exactly. it comes across. Right. And so here's, here's what I try to say. And, and I'm not saying this irons it out, but my view is that no, it's as succinctly as I can say it. I, as a Christian, I believe in the historically Christian view that sex difference is part of what marriage is and that all sexual relationships are intended to be expressed within that covenant bond, period, the end. We include everybody. What is inclusion? Inclusion is including people by the grace and forgiveness and love of Jesus into a community seeking sanctification, holiness, and repentance. And its sexual ethic is one aspect of what sanctifi- what we're including people into. So all people are welcome and all does mean all, but to my radically affirming friends, you know, all means all we include everybody. We don't point the finger at anybody. I'm like, okay, great. That's awesome. So I got my buddies and he's in the KKK. He wants to come to church with his white hood on. Is that cool? Well, yeah, but he, he's got to take that hat off and he needs, I'm like, I agree, man. Um, but yeah. don't, don't, don't make it about including versus including that the only, the primary, none, yeah, the only disagreement is sexual ethics. And, and any genuine Christian is going to draw the line somewhere on sexual ethics, you know? And right, so right. I may draw it differently than you, but don't make it about you're inclusive and I'm not. We just have a different sexual ethic that we are including all people into. Now I'm speaking for myself and I would definitely say many evangelical churches are excluding gay people. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's, that's part of the problem. But you know, people talk about, man, why don't you want to include LGBTQ people in your church? I said, I would be so honored to submit to a gay pastor. A, yeah transgender identified pastor, a queer pat, like I, it's not even about that, those identities for me. And this gets me in trouble with those on the right. For me, you it's think? about is the person living faithfully to Jesus according to the sexual ethic that I do believe is the, the biblical historical uh, ethic that we are living by. Um, but if, but if you use that test, Preston, then almost all of our straight pastors would disappear, exactly. right? Because <laughs> you're not because, allowed to be tempted by sexual, sexual temptations. Then totally. Uh, and like, and, really? <laughs> Right. I just, I, I mean, I, I have a friend who has struggled with pornography um, his whole life and has, has been seeing huge victory in that. Mm, and, and these yeah. are, I mean, here Christian, this is so Christianese, right? Struggle with and victory. But he's seen, so, he's seen a, a great degree of progress. He works for a pretty well-known Christian institution mm-hmm. and he, um, he stumbled. Again, mm. Christian word. He looked at porn for maybe 15 minutes. Mm. And it was the it had been the first time in like six months. I mean, he was just mm. just doing great. Yeah. And, and then he got randomly or not a, an email uh that we know is a scam, but it was like, hey dude, we've we've w- we got footage of you on uh <laughs> on your webcam doing this. <laughs> and we're gonna send it to everyone in your contact list unless you X, Y, and Z. Now, I would hear that and I'd go, well, that's stupid. That's a scam. My very conscience-stricken friend heard that and went to his boss. Oh, wow. And said, hey, I got this email. <laughs> now, now my friend didn't know that the email had been sent to the whole, you know, the whole organization as just, a, as just a scam. 
But, but he went and he confessed, Hey, you know, I had this 15 minute episode where I looked at porn. It was the first time in, you know, a very, very long time. And they, two hours later, they fired him. No explanation. Oh my word. Um, yeah. I mean, just boom. And, and so I, 60% of its leaders are looking at porn for more. Exactly. That's it. So my, my question <laughs> My question is, so when I, when I, whenever I say, Hey, I think the creational ideals in Genesis one and two, technically I don't even live up to that. If you right. take the words of the sermon on the Mount seriously about lust. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so who, so, so again, I, I, I probably push it. I'm with you in pushing it because I'm sitting here thinking if that's the test, if, 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 if how well I hold to my sexual ethic is the test. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't even consistently hold to my sexual ethic. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, that's good. I mean, that it's this kind of posture that is, is going to reopen up many conversations and avenues for the LGBT community to sort of reconsider the church. Cause one of the biggest complaints is the hypocrisy. Oh my goodness. There's so much stuff that we turn a blind eye to or <laughs> are allowed are allowed to struggle with. And they're totally. like, why can't I struggle out loud? You know? I, the, the, right. biggest divide, the, the biggest difference for me is there's a difference between struggling with sin versus calling sin righteousness. So to me, and I'm a huge grace guy. I mean, I probably to a fault, you know, I'm like You got that was your, that was a good book. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Um and I yeah, I tried to push it as far as I could. And and so for me, it's not the, the struggle. I just want to create large open spaces for people to struggle out loud with anything. And because of the nature I'm in ministry, I might get all kinds of stuff with people right. with unwanted desires for really, I mean, all kinds of sexual fetishes and, and yeah. um, uh, I mean, I can go on and on and on. This isn't just an LGBTQ versus straight. I mean, this is like, there's so yeah. many things that people are struggling with desires that they don't want that they didn't choose. Um, the biggest difference for me, though, is, are, yeah, are we kind of pursuing the Genesis 1 and 2 ideal imperfectly with space for failure and, and forgiveness versus mm -hmm. celebrating, you know, and, and pursuing not that, you know, um, so. Yep. Yeah. And, anyway. and, and, and that, that's where the pastoral issue gets so tricky. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, if you're if you're conservative on this, wouldn't you want people to be brought in, even if they're yeah. loud and proud? Yeah. Wouldn't you want yeah. people to be brought into the orbit of word and spirit and community? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. how, so, I mean, that was our, that was our thing at the church and we did it imperfectly and we hurt some people for sure. We, we would allow people to share their stories and we were yeah. really, we didn't know how to handle uh, stories huh. where the, the, you know, one of the punchlines was why well, I just embraced being gay and I got yeah. married to, you know, yeah. my dream and this person rescued me and we were, so we were super, I oh. was, I shouldn't say we were, I was still working it out, but, but to create space, you had to, I mean, there are people who are loud and proud about their, their lust issue or their greed issue or their pride <laughs> issue, right? I mean, so where do you even draw that line between, yeah, we don't want to baptize unrighteousness, right. but, but I also don't want to order someone's discipleship either. Yeah. Like if somebody comes in and they just have a huge ego and everyone is like, dude, this dude is a jerk. Yeah. I'm not, I don't lead with that. Right. right. I, I, I sit and I go, well, bringing into the orbit of word, spirit, Eucharist and community, maybe, maybe God opens that up. And there are, you know, with somebody like that, huge egos or people that are kind of type a plus plus personalities where they're just steamrolling over people without realizing it and are insensitive and whatever, like, um, we would give them 
a, a you know a generous leash <laughs> or, or you know a generous time frame for what it's going to take to work this out i mean some people go to the grave which just 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 yeah stanky stubbornness you know and just <laughs> bullheadedness and all these things that are violated all kinds of so i think yeah i think um giving people space that discipleship is a really sometimes torturous long pro- messy process and uh, we we allow it for some people but not for others or as one of my friends said you know we're we're most likely to vilify the sins that we're least not likely sure to commit. Would, yeah. You know, totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. How, how did you, because I mean, you're, I would imagine your church context had, um, and for my audience, I mean, your audience knows, but my audience... Yeah, just I want to revisit this actually. But so, if you don't know Mike Erie, I'm gonna you know we're like a half hour into the conversation. <laughs> or you know, I'll add I'll add a I'll add a separate intro to this, and I'll tell him who you are. But yeah, so you, I mean, you uh, for the last several years up until you moved to Ohio, you had this church community that grew out of your podcast. Did you have a wide spectrum of conservatives, more progressive? Oh yeah, oh it was how did, beautiful. So what did, how did that work? I mean, how, that was <laughs> Preston. It was the coolest thing ever. Really. Um, so we like, I mean, just, these are just snapshots. Yeah. So here's the white guy and a mullet. I kid you not with a Trump t-shirt <laughs> taking communion behind an illegal immigrant. Okay? Are you serious? Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh. Um, uh, married, um, uh, same sex couples taking communion with people that think that married same sex couples are going to burn in hell. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. Huh? And they, so how did they, so with both those examples, are they like looking at the other person and like, I can't believe they're here. I can't, I'm not going to be able to stay here. Are they actively trying to like, oh, how can I love this person? Both. Yeah. Both. Yeah. I mean, we, we, on, (laughs) on both sides of the issue, we had, we had gay folks that would come and, and cause we, we wanted to build the church on the idea that the church should be the safest place to talk about anything. Mm. And because we believe in sin and we believe in grace and we believe in redemption, right? So, mm-hmm. so what's going to surprise us and what's going to cause us to lose hope? Nothing. Yeah. And, um, and, and we began, I mean, the, the biggest thing we did was built the church on the, on the Eucharist. And I come from yeah. a very non-sacramental yeah. background, but I was having conversation with Rob Bell after his, um, after a lot of controversy, and um, <laughs> and I and I'd asked him a pretty cheesy question, but I asked him, "Hey, if you were going to start a church now, knowing what you know, what would you do differently?" Huh. And he said, "I would build it on the Eucharist. I would build mm-hmm. it on the weekly celebration of the Eucharist." And that that so resonated with wow. some stuff because I'd been I'd been studying communion, and this idea of a closed table, mm. I just don't see it. I don't, I, I mean, you talk about controversy. I didn't, just don't see it in the Bible. Can we what get into I, that real quick? Cause I, I, yeah. I'm, so let me, I'll try to keep this really short. Cause I don't want to break no, up. No, your, no. As I see the early communion in first Corinthians 11, if you study the kind of background there, you got this house church of maybe 20 to maybe 50 max people. The communion is at the very least part of a meal, an actual meal, if not the meal itself. That. Yeah. So that when, what would it look like for you to bring your non-believer to that meeting, your yep. non-believing friend, yep. and to say, hey, 
I know I brought you to this meeting that's, that's the focus of this gathering is a big meal we're going to celebrate together. You're not allowed to eat <laughs> dinner time. Right. So if you just sit over there, we're going yeah. to eat this luscious meal. We have got good yeah. wine here, good homemade bread. And, and yeah. um, you, after we're done, then we're going to do some teaching. And you can be a part of that, but you can't be part of this, this the meal. <laughs> totally. that, it's just odd, right? But then right. my intention is, just like yeah. practically, I'm like, of course non-believers were, that's, of course they were. Like that's, that's what they were there for is to dine with them. But then what about, aren't there statements that, do imply that partaking of the meal, you are part of the body of Christ or what oh, are there yeah, verses yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Now this, so this what? is what I was studying. This is so good, bro. Yeah. Oh, so good. <laughs> so, so I came from a, a, a church community that practiced communion four times a year after foot washing. All right. It was like <laughs> the biggest, most sacred deal candles, no fluorescent lights. I mean, it was a huge deal. And I've always just, in, I inherited the traditional view, right? That that you have to examine yourself and you have to confess right. your sin before you can come to the table. And there were times when I was dating and I was physically involved with somebody, I would not take communion right. because I'm like, I don't want to bring judgment on myself. I don't want to die. Uh, I don't want to uh, sleep. Exactly. I don't want to get, <laughs> I don't want to sleep, whatever that means. Um, and uh, and so I, I, I was doing a series on 1 Corinthians and I got to a, um, 11, and I read the I read the chapter in context, shockingly, and, and discovered that that it wasn't non Christians being warned away, it was rich Christians being critiqued mm. yeah. for shaming the poor Christians. Right, and that and 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 you know people push back instantly. They're like, but yeah, they they got to examine themselves and recognize the body. Okay, when you go into First Corinthians twelve, and again, there's no chapter division there. What's the body? The body, body isn't the body of Jesus. It's yeah. the body of Christ. Right. Correct. Yeah. So what yeah. they were doing is tearing the body of Christ asunder and the way they were shaming non-Christian or they were shaming uh, Christian, the Christian poor. We know from first Corinthians 14, there were non-believers in these gatherings, right? Because yeah. Paul says, if you're going to speak in a tongue, you have to interpret it. Mm -hmm. Are people mm -hmm. going to think you're nuts? Yeah. But not once in his whole discussion does he warn them not to take the Lord's Supper. The only warning was given to the Christians, and not just any Christian, but to the rich Christians that were eating ahead of the poor. Yes. Because the whole thing, he sums up the last, I think it's the last verse in chapter uh, 30, or chapter 11, verse 30, I think. He simply says, so then, come together when you eat. And wow. then he moves on. And, and that had nothing to do with examining yourself. Can, I mean, I, I literally sat in a church where the pastor said, hey, you got to get cleaned up. <laughs> like if you're going to go out to eat, you get cleaned up. If you come to the Lord's table, you got to get cleaned up. And that is the biggest bunch of BS. You can say right? it. <laughs> no, well, I, I don't know how raw is theology in the raw. Um, uh, and and, 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 and it, was, it was so shocking and so many people were offended because well, I left EV Free Fullerton. Our first podcast was why gay marriage is good for the church. And it was non-controversial <laughs> stuff. I mean, but it was like, it forces us to admit our hypocrisy. It forces yeah. us to talk about sexuality besides no. Like, duh. Yeah. And then we, and then we uh, open a church where women can lead and open mm -hmm. communion is practiced. And I'm a heretic or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, but guys, read the freaking Bible. It never warns non-Christians. Yeah. And in fact, if the, if the, first communion meal was based on Passover. Passover had stipulations for the alien and, right. uh, oh, and, uh, in, in its practice. Well, and it, so, it, the, the, the statement to wait for one another, here's what I read about the background 
Um, and uh, Moyer Hubbard is great. Do you, yeah. know Moyer? do you know him? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, he's got this, you know, he was saying that like in that world, you know, rich people didn't have to work if at all, very much. So they would, they would be free by two o'clock in the afternoon. Then yep. they'd go to the bath houses for a couple hours. Then they would go to the community, the, the gathering. This is the church. Now you have rich Christians yeah. and poor Christians, which you crystal clear throughout Corinthians. This is one of the biggest problems is the rich totally. poor thing. So you have the rich Christians showing up early. The, the poor Christians are having to work all day. They're getting there at six, seven, eight at night. And yep. so when he says, wait for one another, he's telling the rich Christians to don't eat ahead of time. Don't you have houses to eat in? Here right. you are. You're already drunk by the time the poor people show up. You're not considering the body, meaning the yeah. poor believers in the body, That's wait right. for one another. That's in other right. words, you rich Christians, wait until the poor Christians get off work. If you're hungry, then go get, you can eat or whatever. But when you come together for the meal, you need to all come together. That's right. Together. Because they so, would eat in a separate place. They would eat at yeah. a separate time. And some would argue they were eating separate food. Yeah, all um, the higher quality, they would eat all the good yes, stuff. Yes, yes, yes. So they were shaming. I mean, <laughs> so they took what was meant to be a unifying act. Yes. And, and they used it to shame the poor Christians. <laughs> and because of that, Paul says, some of you have fallen asleep. And that's the that's an Ananias and Sapphira thing, I think. Wow. Right? Because how rich and poor interacted was super, super important in the early church. Right? So Ananias and Sapphira wasn't about whether or not they gave all the money. It was wow. it was the fact that they were shaming the church by keeping some for themselves while claiming they were giving it all. So oh, to wow. me, to me, this ties in to God's why did why do we have those random incidents where God's striking people down in the New Testament? Well, to me, it was it's it it is it is uh, a rich and poor issue, uh, where the church had to be shown in an in the ugliest way possible that the honor shame and the patron client relationships that yeah. dominated interaction yeah. simply did not apply in the church, and they could not apply for the church to be the church. So I don't know how we go from there to you have to confess your sin before you take the bread and the cup to then unbelievers, you have to be a disciple of Jesus. We would have international students who would come to our community. We had a woman in our community who loved international students. So we'd have eight or nine people coming from Korea or other places in Asia, and some of whom were Christian, many of whom were not. And yeah. we would, and, and, and every week we, would, we made the table the center and that would always give us the opportunity, of course, to explain the gospel, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and that was beautiful, but, um, but we would invite and, and they would come. So here's some Buddhists, right? <laughs> who don't yeah. know what they're doing. So you're telling me Jesus of Nazareth is going to strike them down <laughs> or, or we had an, we had a, a believing wife and an atheistic husband, one of our first weekends show up and the athe the atheist had never taken communion with his wife. He just thought the whole thing was nonsense. So whatever, for whatever reason, for the first time in their 40 years of marriage, he walks down with her and takes the bread and the cup. And wow. you're going to tell me that Jesus of Nazareth is pissed. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> what, what about the, the road to Emmaus? I'm, I'm trying to, I don't have my Bible. Well, I do have a, a Bible, but I don't feel like opening it. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and so Luke 24, Road to Emmaus. Yep. I yep. think they say at least two times that it was through the breaking of bread that their yeah. eyes were opened. Is that, I mean, I don't want to get yes. too hung up on the order, but I just wonder. No, 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 if, that's right. That's right. 
the breaking of the bread is the means through which God might open eyes, not make sure your eyes are open and then you're allowed to take the bread, right? Isn't that? <laughs> yes. It's like, it's like baptism. Do you have to get cleaned up before you get baptized? No. Yeah. Baptism is the indication that you are opening yourself up for the cleaning, correct? Well, what about, so baptism do, though does come after you know, repent and be baptized. Like you are wanting to go down this journey, right? Or, Absolutely. And but how more, how morally pure do you have to be no, to be not baptized? At all. at all. Not at all. Not at all. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And and all and yes, it's an introductory rite that's different than communion, which right, is a sustaining right. rite. Totally, totally yeah. acknowledge and get that. If someone were a Buddhist and did not want to affirm Jesus as Lord, I would not baptize them. Right. Right. So what's the biggest pushback then? What's the people listening? Like, so I mean, you were, I may get more emails than you do. Although my, my audiences are pretty, <laughs> now our audiences are kind of the same. They're going to, even if they don't totally agree with what we're saying, they're going to love the conversation, but they give, they give grace. Yes. What would be the biggest pushback to everything that you're saying? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here. You're probably further ahead in this. And I, I just, I've always thought it odd that if it's an early meal, right. Be either part of a meal or, or the meal itself, how, what would it look like for unbelievers to be excluded from that? So that, that's my yeah. biggest hang up. But what, right. what would it be if you can play devil's advocate to everything you're saying? What would the yeah. one hang up be? Well, the, the other argument I use for this is Jesus's table fellowship with sinners. Okay. Yeah. That Jesus would have table fellowship with people before they repented. Now, is that directly it, related to the later communion? Well, and that's the objection. The objection okay. is, um, and it's a good one, table fellowship isn't, isn't communion. And, and then my question is, okay, in what ways is it different? And in what ways then does it become more exclusive? T tell me that. Is it only, yeah. right? Because, and, 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 and I, I understand the objection being made for sure. My counter is simply, we've turned communion into some sort of magic, right? It was a meal. It was a reenactment. I think there, I think Christ is present in some way. I mean, I, I don't think it's just right. bread and wine. I think there's, Paul seems to indicate with his parallel about demons, right? He's like, you're, you're participating with demons when you eat that idol meat. So right. somehow we're participating in some mystery bigger than us. But, but I see a, no warning against unbelievers. B, the only warning is against believers, and it was specifically and, – and if he didn't name the specific circumstance, then I would say, absolutely, we got to yeah. be really careful with this. But right. he names the circumstance, he gives a prescription for how to do it differently, and then he moves on, and then in later, three chapters later, he's talking about what to do when unbelievers are there. He right. says nothing about the Lord's table. He just simply says, interpret your freaking tongues. <laughs> so so the the best argument that's the, that's I've heard translation there interpret your free <laughs> So the best translation or the best argument against it um is the is the is the idea that hey people were falling asleep we don't know if that's the only circumstance where people mm. were falling asleep and and do you really want to push it like if this is this is I mean this is for disciples right it's a celebration of the risen Right. Mm -hmm. As often as you celebrate it, you're not only remembering, but you're anticipating. Mm -hmm. So how can you divorce? How can you have somebody participate in a rite divorced from its meaning? In uh, so I do have my Bible open now. I, I, <laughs> uh, so in 1127, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood and body and blood of the Lord. So that unworthy manner is specifically in this context. Yeah. Keep reading. Keep reading. Okay. Uh, let a person examine himself yep. then and so eat the bread and, the, and drink a cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body 
Come on. That's rich Christians not considering the, the, the rest Christians. of the body, namely the poor right. Christians. Right. drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died, this translation says. But yeah. if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So when we okay, are keep judged going, the Lord, keep going. Uh, so, uh, so then my brothers, when you come together, wait for to eat, wait for one another. And that that to me, that is crystal clear. It is rich believers waiting That's for it. poor believers to get off work so they can come join the meal. Yeah. Now, no, I would then add this from that specific instance. I think Paul does broaden it to uh, perceiving the body. Right. I mean, he says that. Okay. Examine yourselves, and and I, and I take that to mean that if you were participating in communion in a way that invalidates its central message, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. Okay. So there is a broader application of absolutely. Okay. I think yeah. there. I think there is. I think there is. Right. And so, so I, 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 nothing specific comes to mind, other than you know, if you like, if you were. Um, if you if you restricted communion to those who tithe, right. um, uh, you know, I you would be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think there, like, I think it's an honor shame thing more than it is a sexual purity thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And this is yeah. where and this is where you know the big mistake we've made is we've reduced holiness to sexual purity. Right. And and in the in the American church. And so and that's why we only disqualify people, you know, for sex. But we're now starting, bro. We're now starting to disqualify people for greed and ego <laughs> yeah. and hallelujah for all of that. Yeah. Hey, and by the way, dude, if you were going to start a church. Yeah. Right. So we, we've we've seen Bill Hybels, who, yeah. man, I, you know, I, I was a fan. Um, Have you? James, yeah. Oh. What do you what do you think's going on? You've got the sexual abuse scandals for the SBC. I mean, dude, isn't it crazy right now? Well, I think I don't have much to add to that except what I think you would say and what other people are saying. Just we we've we've structured church that sort of elevates and isolates this kind of senior leader. And um yeah, I mean in all those situations. The, the, the word on the street is, you know, these leaders that fall, they did have a bunch of kind of yes men around them, but no genuine like openness mm-hmm. and accountability or even space where the leader could say, hey, I watched 15 minutes of porn last night and people would come up and say, hey, would love to be an accountability or whatever, like help you out rather than you're fired on the spot and there's right. no place for redemption. Um, so, yeah, I mean, could Bill Hybels, could, were structures in place where he could have came up on a Sunday morning and said, you know what? I was inappropriate with a woman last week, you know, nothing, we didn't go all the way or whatever, but there's an emotional thing going on here. And I, I, inappropriate hugging. She called me on it. I'm really sorry. And really want to do better. Like, I don't, that wouldn't have been a category. There's no possibility for leaders to be as, as fragile as they really are. And, but those are structures that we've built to put in place to where we, elevate these kind of leaders are not allowed to kind of struggle with stuff um, or, or have genuine accountability where somebody could say at an elder meeting, Bill, man, you're out of line here. And he would say, you're right. Rather than don't you dare. To, and I don't know, if I'm, <laughs> you know, but, but no, I've heard stories where it's like, oh, no, that was Bill in particular, but with these kind of, you know, high, high profile, powerful leaders that build big churches and big movements typically are the kind this is going to be an overstatement, are a kind of personality that naturally doesn't do well when they're confronted <laughs> or called out, right? I mean, isn't that, I mean. <laughs> yeah, the narcissists have run amok. 
<laughs> and I and I and I only know because I'm I'm a recovering one. So well, yeah. So I, so I yeah. You, you were a senior leader at at least three different mega churches. So come on, what's, baby. What's your like? How come? Are, how come you didn't fall, <laughs> or did you, or what? <laughs> or or in what oh. is what I'm saying about the structure? Is that have you experienced? No, absolutely. So <laughs> so it's a double edged sword. You you either have um, structures in place that are too oppressive. Or you have structures in place that are just theoretical. Okay. And, and because, because the argument is, well, you can't really hold someone accountable, right? Um, and sometimes uh, accountability is just a ruse for control and manipulation right. or whatever. So, so I, at one of the churches I came in, we were doing prayer requests in the elder meeting. And, and, and the prayer requests were fine. They were about you know my son or my friend or my whatever. And I just was like, no, I, I really want to establish what the, who they're dealing with here. So I said, listen, guys, would you pray for me on Mondays? Because if I'm going to look at porn and overeat, it's going to be on Monday, <laughs> right? After preaching on Sunday. And it, like a pin, you just, it, it was like, oh, I, I can only imagine what was going through their heads. <laughs> um, but, but what I found is I, I don't know of many wise, older people who are willing to coach, walk through, mentor somebody who would make a statement like that, mm. right? It's just it's yeah. just easier to you know, well, hey, he'll confess, um, or to trust a structure, or to just say, well, okay, you're fired. Um, it's much much harder to say. It's not just that I looked at porn and I struggled, you know, years ago, but like two nights ago, I was I was watching, yeah, yeah. Um, this. <laughs> right? I mean, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so for me, the, the good-hearted structures are fine, but they're not the important thing. Yeah. The, are there people old enough and wise enough to discern in a case-by-case basis what actually disqualifies someone and what's part of just the regular working out of faith? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, because totally. now it's yeah. and now it's like the sins are so egregious when they when and you're like, oh my goodness, how they let this go this far, or they're so freaking trivial, like my friend. Yeah. Who, man, if that's if that would disqualify me, I should I should be disqualified a zillion times over. Yeah. Right. And so to to me, you could have all the structures in the world; it doesn't matter. Um, to have a humble enough pastor, which is you know asking a lot. Because um, I'm very prideful and and know that pride well, but then also having people who are gracious who can look at you and say, you know, man, yeah, you're freaking horn dog and you need to stop this, but that doesn't mean you can't preach on Sunday. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. you, you started you started asking me if I was going to start a church, what would it be in this spilled over into this? What what was yeah. the what were you going to ask though? Like like well, I it? wanted well, the thing that. Because I, I was saying, hey, we only disqualify people from sex. And then it got into, oh, but but that's changing, thankfully. You know, now mm-hmm. pride and, mm-hmm. and now greed. But one of the questions I'd written down to just ask you is, you know, you've seen a lot of the church. Yeah, yeah. Francis has been on such an interesting journey with the church. Um, yeah. and, and you've traveled a bunch. And, and I, I was just like, I'm curious. Like, if you were going to start one, what would it be like? What would it yeah. be like for you? <laughs> well, I did uh, a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, you're you're. Oh, really? I didn't know that. It was like a, it was basically a um, a, a distant associ- affiliation with Francis's um, ah yeah church out in San Francisco. So it was that model. It was there's no income, 
Um, everything's kind of volunteer. Uh, we didn't yeah. have seats to begin with. I wanted to make it so uncomfortable that as few people could come as possible. So we didn't provide chairs. <laughs> it's like, hey, if you want to sit down, you can, I don't know, go find a chair. Sure enough, the next week, some guy pitched in and bought a bunch of chairs from Costco. I was like, dang it, you know? Like, <laughs> I didn't know um, so, I mean, from my, yeah, I am very, I guess, well, where did I start? I have grown less critical of the church over the last couple of years, I would say. Mm. I went through a, a grow, a slow growing period of being kind of critical. Then I grew into cynicism and to the part of the, the worst point was just, I was just kind of fed up of just church, you know, mm. um, like this is, just seems so distant from the new Testament. What are you even doing? And for me, the big one too, is, I mean, just how much money is, how much, how expensive it is to break bread and pray. It's, no, it's, no, I'm serious. It's so expensive. It's like, I don't know what the, you know, I know church planners that they need to raise a quarter million dollars before they can even break bread and pray. And I'm using that, you know, I'm being kind of facetious a little bit, but I mean, we've, I think, oh, so overly complicated and expensified. There's got to be a better word than that. The, the gather, the, the existence yeah. of a community of people that practically, a lot of ministries moving forward in 2019 and beyond are not going to be able to function because we don't know how that's to right. do ministry. That's right. Simply anymore. And that's just, that's yeah. just a fact. I mean, the whole yeah. boom of the 1980s, those yeah. people are dying off. I mean, talk to any church plan. I know church planners have like 800 people in their church and they're all like millennials and Gen Z. So that, which they don't give anybody <laughs> and they don't make any money anyway. And so, right. you know, it's like, yeah, I can, you know, they have like one part-time paid staff, you know, 800 people. <laughs> so totally, um, you're not going to be able to afford the, the, all the bells and whistles. So, so for me, my, my big passions are genuine, genuine discipleship and relationships. Let's cut the Christian BS. If you show up to church and somebody says, how you're doing? So, you know, I'm doing good, except as I'm pouring all night last night, you're like, oh man, me too. Let's pray together. Let's go take bread together. And like, I want it to be just, just, create an environment where you can't belong to this community unless you are completely pursuing an authentic, broken, imperfect walk with Jesus. So, so authentic relationships is a huge priority for me. Um, simplicity is a huge priority mm -hmm. for me. I don't, mm -hmm. I, I've backed off the no paid pastor thing because that's what we tried to do. And I don't, um, I think it can work in some context and it did, it is working in chance. I mean, they, um, leaders are being trained. People are getting saved right and left. Discipleship's happening. They now have what 16, 20 different house churches all networked together. And not a single penny has gone into the sustain, sustaining the ministry. No pastor has ever taken a dime. So it's working for them. Now they're, they have a unique cultural geographical context. They have a unique, I mean, Francis Chan's unique. So, I mean, they, uh, <laughs> um, it, it, I'm not, I used to think this is the, the way to do it. And now I'd say it's one way, but even I, I'm, I'm all for releasing people for ministry and even paying them well. Like I don't, yeah. I pay my Christian dentist. Well, why can't I pay my Christian pastor extremely well, you know? Mm. Um, so I, 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 I want to see a simple church where everything is intentionally surrounding you know, the mission of the church, reaching the community and discipling people. If, if money is not being directly, isn't directly related to that. So I'm pretty, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we can buy chairs. Maybe not. I mean, we, if, if you would go to a green Bay Packers game 
in 20 degree <laughs> below and stand for four hours, <laughs> then I just, I don't, you don't, a bill, you can have a building. If not, if it's 10 degrees out and you come to church and you want to stand under a overpass and worship God that way. And then I'm like, I kind of shrug my shoulders and say, yeah, that let's, let's do that. You know, mm-hmm. and, well, we mm-hmm. wouldn't have anybody come. Then I'm like, well, maybe they're not committed. Maybe they, need to, but if our, and I, I, and even that, I just get annoyed. And soon it's not, I'm centering it on the service. And so I do think <laughs> the, the gathering of believers is always central, but the modern day church service, I think has, I don't know. I, I, mm-hmm. And here's where I don't want to come down too harsh. Cause I, do see more value in that than maybe I, I used to. I don't want to downplay that. Um, I get it. I, I just, instead of church services and, and yeah. so much time, energy and focus and personnel and staff and going into pulling off a church service, which is largely directed at keeping or uh, drawing people. And, and mm-hmm. no one would say that explicitly or a few people, well, actually a lot of people would, but I mean, I, I just, yeah, I, I want to, I want time, money, resources being directed at the, this, yeah. the, the gathering of believers in as much as that furthers the mission and discipleship of, of the church. Not I'd, want the, I'd want the same thing that I would want from World Vision or from Compassion International. Right. The most amount of my money going to the mission. Right, yeah. And the least amount of money going <laughs> to overhead. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. You know, and that's where podcasting so interesting because, um, you know, take take the, the last church, uh, the last big church I was a part of, um, it's $10 million budget, yeah. you know, 8,000 people, you know, over the course of a month. I mean, they wouldn't all show up at once. Um, 120 staff, 20 acres. Yeah. Um, and then, and now you can, and, and, and the sermon was seen as, you know, kind of central to the whole deal. Now, for most people, for most of those thousands of people, coming and listening to the sermon is a big part of what they're paying That's right. for. Sense, right? That's right. Right. But now, right. You, I, I, we put out a podcast and uh, it gets downloaded how many tens of thousands of times, you know, yeah. and it's free. Yeah. So if all the, if all the services is an information system, yeah, you know, it's going to go the way of the, the dinosaur, yeah. right? Because yeah. there are just so many cheaper ways to do it. So right. what was interesting about what we were trying to do was to say, okay, well, let's take the sermon out of it. Like we had a teaching, but we opened the service with it and it was designed to lead to the Eucharist, yeah. right? So, so yeah, we had a teaching, but we had a podcast too. And I mean, there, no one needs, I mean, the vast majority of people in churches don't need more information. Right. Yeah. So, so anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm totally with you on it and, yeah. and I do think we go through a church cynicism phase. Yeah. You think that's good? I think it's necessary. I don't yeah. know that it's good. <laughs> I just think I just think that there's no way to love the church for who she is without being first terribly disillusioned mm. with her. Oh, that's good. Okay. And um, it's kind of like forgiveness. There's no way to forgive somebody unless you acutely feel every bit of the hurt they did to you. Yeah, that's good. And so, so to, you know, that, and that's why I haven't given up, right? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I think there are things you can do to minimize damage and, and minimize the potential for damage and abuse. But at the end of the day, um, I, I I'm saved into a people, right? And I, I need to be reminded of that. Yeah. And that's, and that's the downside of podcasting, as you know, I mean, yeah. we're just, you know, we're just isolated white male straight voices. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and the world needs more. The world needs more. That's what yeah. the world needs more of. 
that you know i thought about the podcast thing and like you can do a podcast and draw a pretty big crowd if you're having interesting conversations if my podcast your podcast was me preaching a traditional sermon i don't think i'd have nearly as no. many people so this is what i th- i do would i would love to maybe encourage pastor or you, you asked me about me so if if i was going to start a church again i would explore multiple ways to have rich thoughtful honest conversation good, about god good. and faith and politics if there's a racial uh shooting you know a shooting racially motivated on tuesday or saturday we talk about we would be talking about that on sunday yeah. we wouldn't be doing a, you know john chapter six or whatever like it would be like right i, I want and it would be i i'm a big fan of dialogical teaching we live in an age there's this thing called the internet uh, and it's wh- it's completely changed the way culture um <laughs> absorbs information it now absorbs information in a much more dialogical manner whereas mm. in even news articles on cnn you can respond you can ask questions whatever totally well think about how the, news is presented it's not an yeah. anchor anymore it's a big conversation holy for us to as a church to still just have monologues close in prayer and give no space for people to process even out loud totally. or respond that that just i mean it will change it's just it needs i mean we need to kind of understand that the era of the kind of oration, the monologue, it worked well for, you know, from the reformation up until the internet. Um, We now live in a different cultural environment where dialogue conversation is the primary form of how people learn. Why do people, why is Joe Rogan the most popular podcast when he'll have people on for three hours and just talk? Also the intellectual depth and honesty needs to be, way elevated in the church people are preach hungry super hungry for honest yeah reflection and intellectual conversations and stuff because they do it i mean monday through saturday they're asking really hard questions they're thinking through complexities about race and immigration and faith and culture and sexuality and gender and all these things and we get to sunday and sometimes we again are doing a you know a youth group sermon on steroids and it's just people are, and I think people yeah. just kind of go with it and they'll I often people, you know, hear people, Oh, that was such a good sermon. And then, you know, ask them, well, what was, what'd you get out of it? You know, like, why? I don't know, man. I can't really remember, but man, I just, my heart was moved, you know, and, and God works through that, you know, but I, I just, of course. Why, yeah. Again, going back to why are deeply intellectual podcasts so incredibly popular? Why is Jordan Peterson? Come on. A, quasi-christian-ish not really whatever <laughs> how does he fill a room i know talk with thousands of people and he's talking about the bible and using in-depth union psychological garb and half the room are non-believers and they're coming to hear him talk about knowing the flood for three hours right you know and he you know yep. And I think pastors would be like, I can never do that. And they wouldn't, if, you know, if you preach a sermon for three hours. But if you did something <laughs> that is intellectually yeah. incredibly off the chart and compelling and honest, and he's not even, I don't even think Jordan Peterson is all that clear, really. I mean, every other word, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm trying to follow his thinking. And but right. people are interested in the in deep things about life, culture, faith, the Bible. And um, yep. you made a statement, and I'll, I'm going to pass, on the, pass the ball back to you. But No, um, no, Preston, I love it. If I get... The, one of the most common things I hear this is going back to the sexuality conversation from uh, gay or lesbian couples that are going to traditional churches that don't go to the many affirming churches that they can go to. 
Mm-hmm. And I have a quote, actually, a, a mega church leader in, in Denver, uh, 12,000 people. Um, he says, man, we have so many lesbian couples showing up. And I ask him, you know, why? There's, there's actually many affirming churches in Denver. Why are you coming here? They say, because we, you teach the Bible in depth. Mm-hmm. If we're going to wake up on a Sunday and actually go to church, uh, we're not just to go and be yet again affirmed that nothing's wrong with us. You're not doing anything wrong. There's no, no, no sin, no repentance, no brokenness. Everything's great. And they're like, we know that's not true. <laughs> like yeah. we want to hear some thoughtful depth and we want to be challenged. We want her to be stirred up, you know? Um, yeah. so I, th- I think that's just a hunger in the heart of, of so many people. They want to engage in thoughtful, conversations about faith politics in the context of meaningful authenticity absolutely so we're all we're all we're all journeying together yeah you know it's not a expert and i've got it yeah no dude that's so good that's so good and that and that i think that's why people tune in you know to podcasts i mean I'm, i'm continually surprised i don't know if you ever think of this but i'm continually surprised that people listen. Yeah. No, totally. I am shocked every time I get an email saying, Hey, I listen to you on the podcast. I'm like, Whoa, people are actually listening. To this right. 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 I'm just, I'm just shocked. And, and so anyway, but, but dude, that's so good. I, I need to get my kid off the bus in about 15 oh, minutes. You gotta go. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Hold on. Hold on. We're not, no, we're not doing that. I, but we actually, I want to talk about this event and this is particularly for ohio listeners oh yeah uh we have a bunch of those you're coming to cleveland to to do one of the institute events yeah we're the center for uh faith sexuality and gender events so tell us about that because i i want people to know about that yeah and to either grab their churches or their staffs or whatever and go up to go up to cleveland i'm in columbus which is about two hour drive yeah um what day is it so I uh, I don't have it in front of me. Is it April twenty third? I think. Yeah, I, I have all the information. You're, I was just so, you're trying, trying to... to throw me a softball, and I I, <laughs> I watched it go down the middle and strike one. Yeah, April twenty third. It's a it's a Tuesday from eight thirty to three thirty. Um, all the information is on our website centerforfaith.com. If you go to either our events link or specifically our leaders forum uh, link, you'll see the event for Cleveland April twenty third. So what what it is? It's called a leaders forum on faith, sexuality, and gender. We spend all day talking about faith, sexuality, and gender. So about a third of what we do is just talk about relationships. Try, mm. try to humanize this conversation. Um, I tell lots of stories about LGBT people in the church and their experience. Uh, we always have a panel of LGBT Christians that share their story, which is always a highlight of wow. the day. We spend a third digging into theology. We look at what does the Bible say about marriage, same-sex relationships, uh, what are some pushbacks, kind of like what we did earlier, you know, dress mm-hmm. and and I try to do that in, I, I want to, I don't want to stir up the crowd that is looking for ammunition to win an argument, but yeah, I do want boy. to spread. I do want to say that the traditional view of marriage it, in, it, it has credibility to it. It's not just some tradition we've assumed. And then a third of what we do is we look at questions like membership and service and leadership. And what does this look like on the ground? Although, again, some of the stuff we're talking about, you know, if I get a nickel for every pastor, the emails me saying, dude, I preached the gospel last Sunday and a lesbian couple came forward hand in hand. They're so excited to follow Jesus. They have two kids. Now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so we wrestle with some of those questions and there's no real, you know, black and white, easy answer to those. But uh, yeah, it's uh, we typically get anywhere from, I mean, all the way from like a hundred to 300, typically two to 300 uh, pastors and That's leaders. Awesome. It's open to anybody. It's called the leaders forum, but we get a lot of parents with LGBT kids. 
Absolutely. Uh, we get um, people that are leading Christian ministries or people that are just interested in learning more. So it really is open to all. So, yeah, we'd love to see uh, any of you out there in Ohio coming to. Yeah, come on, OH. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that. So, so for me, I get a lot of questions um, for people who are entering into this conversation. Yeah. And they'll say, hey, what if I'm looking for the best non-affirming book yeah. and the best affirming book, where do I start? Right. And, and so uh, you don't, you don't have to agree with the traditional view to get something out of this. No, we um, all, I would say about, I mean, an overwhelming majority would be on the non-affirming or traditional side, but we, um, in fact, one, I did a, I did one in San Diego and there was a whole table of like pretty high profile affirming Christian leaders, you know, and, yeah. And, uh, they, you know, obviously they disagreed with some things and, and, you know, let me know about that. But, uh, they, they were like, man, this is, you know, as one guy said, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to repeat it, but uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> was kind of like of this, you know, toxic theology. Yours is the best presentation of it. I'm like, I didn't, um, uh, yeah. And, and I, and I, but the, one of the first words out of my mouth when we start is if you're here and you are affirming or LGBTQ and, and whatever, I'm so glad you're here. I want this to be a safe place for you. If it doesn't feel like that, you come tell me and I'm going to, I will make sure that you are not being sort of judge critique. We want this to be a safe place for people to think out loud along yeah. with those on the far right. They're saying, I want to kick every gay person out of my church. How, 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 what do you think about that? I'm like, thank you for saying, thank you for being honest. Let's talk about right. that. So well, yeah. one quick thing, you do have to register for the event. I should tell people that some people show up the day of and, and it, um, they do sell out oftentimes. So definitely nice. register. Ahead of Does time. it cost anything? It does. Yeah. It's 95 for a single person, 85 for a group of four or more. Or if you're a seminary student, it's, it's half off 50%. That's um, what I'm talking about. You do get, I mean, it's free lunch. You get free resource or free resources. You get resources that um, are part of that package. So I, I, um, yeah, I, I have had some people say, man, why do you charge? Why do you charge so much? I've never had anybody. We haven't had a single person. I don't think leave that I've heard about after they go through it saying, man, that really wasn't worth my money. The response has been really, really good. So. Yeah. 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 Why do you charge for it? Oh, I don't know. Because there's work involved uh, know, um, right? <laughs> and there's value given. Yeah. Well, I spent, so, you know, $130,000 on, uh, you know, 10 years of education. That <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, that's so good, man. Preston, it's so good to see your face, hear your voice. You too, um, man. Yeah, dude, I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. And and uh, I we, you know, um, are big fans of Theology in the Raw. Love what you're doing. Love the candid, fun. Uh, I love that you do Q&A too. I don't think we do enough of that. Yeah. And fun. so anyway, man, well done. Thanks for your time today. You too. We got to do this again. This is fun. All right, my man. <laughs> All right. Peace out, y'all.